Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, and QuietMark is the independent global certification program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. Through scientific testing and assessment, QuietMark identifies the quiet products in multiple categories spanning many sectors, including home appliances and technology, building sector materials, and commercial sector products. Now, regular listeners to the show would have heard me mention the Noise Abatement Society at the beginning of every episode, but who or what are the Noise Abatement Society? What do they do? Well, the guest on today's episode is their Managing Director, Lisa Lavia. In addition to telling us more about the Noise Abatement Society's history, their mission, and her role there, Lisa, who herself is an MBA, PhD student, FRSA, and IOA Institute of Acoustics member, shares her expert knowledge on soundscape and stories of some of the projects that she's done with the Noise Abatement Society to help not only to reduce noise, but improve acoustics in the built environment. So, as I mentioned, Lisa is the Noise Abatement Society's Managing Director and a third-year PhD student at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. Lisa was an Industrial Research Fellow at the University of Sheffield, researching applied soundscape practices in UK cities and a Management Committee member of the EU COST, Cooperation in Science and Technology Action, TD 0804, on Soundscapes of European Cities and Landscapes. Her PhD title is Soundscape Engagement and Planning Practices in Airport Expansion Projects in the UK, in which she's investigating the role of stakeholders' perceived control in participatory planning and co-creation practices in the built environment. Lisa holds an MBA from Holt Ashridge International Business School in London, where her studies focused on socially, environmentally and economically sustainable business models. The Noise Abatement Society campaigns and conducts research, education and outreach to policymakers industry, academia, and citizens to solve noise pollution problems for benefit of all. Lisa joined the Noise Abatement Society in 2009 following a career in corporate affairs and technical communications spanning over 20 years in the private sector. She quickly established the Noise Abatement Society's Soundscape program, putting NAS at the global forefront of international soundscape standardization and applied soundscape practices in the UK through demonstration projects, applied research, and policy development. Lisa's also a member of several international and British standards committees and the UK expert appointed to the International Organisation for Standardisations ISO TC43 SC1 Working Group 54 on Soundscape. As part of the International Soundscape Working Group, Lisa has been on the drafting committee for three international soundscape standards. She's also published several peer-reviewed journal articles, conference papers, policy documents and two book chapters. She's an advisor on multiple research projects and to policymakers on soundscape and is co-supervising a PhD on oral diversity and soundscape at Goldsmiths University in London. In 2011, Lisa helped to establish the NAS's Future Sound Foundation, FSF programme, with NAS's Chief Executive, Gloria Elliott OBE. Lisa leads the programme and is regularly invited to share her soundscape research and practical experience. Through FSF, Lisa is further developing NAS's soundscape education, mentoring the next generation of urban sound planners, designers and developers, outreach, consultancy and research. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you, Simon. Good to see you. Good to see you too, albeit not in person. We're socially distancing and working from home. Tell the listeners where you are. I'm in Brighton in England. But that's not a Brighton accent. No, I'm originally from California. I grew up near San Francisco, so I am used to grey weather by the seaside. <laughs> As we record on this January afternoon. Thank you for joining us for this show. I tell the listeners at the beginning of every episode that QuietMark is the independent international approval award program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. But who or what is the Noise Abatement Society Foundation? The Noise Abatement Society is a very powerful uh, charity uh, with very high impact. It was started in 1959 by John Connell, who is... Quiet Mark founders Poppy Skeeler's grandfather. John Connell's daughter, Gloria Elliott, is the chief executive of the charity today. And John started the society in 1959, and he nearly single-handedly lobbied the Noise Abatement Act through UK Parliament in 1960. 
making noise a statutory nuisance in the UK for the first time. And thus we got our name, the Noise Abatement Society. Over the years, John developed many pragmatic and useful programs, such as lobbying for quiet dustbin lids, uh, lobbying for restrictions on night flights for aviation. And he developed the quiet seal, which is um, probably a precursor to the quiet mark. The quiet seal was established in 1968. He also developed calls for greater research on sound and noise and how it affects us, which again is a precursor to much of the work that the Noise Abatement Society is doing today through Soundscape and the Future Sound Foundation. He had a program called Love Your Neighbor, which was the precursor to today's program, which we have called Love Your Ears, which is really about the power of sound and how it affects us. Because if we can understand how it affects us as individuals, we are better capable of understanding how the sound or the noises that we make might affect others. So the work of the society today is really carrying on from the roots that John Connell established over 60 years ago. And we're still carrying on and building on his vision today. In your bio, at the start of the show, I read that you established the Noise Abatement Society's Soundscape program. Please tell us more about those projects that you're doing. When I joined the Noise Abatement Society in 2009, we began looking at what were some of the areas that the society could begin to take its work to address present and also future challenges for acoustics. And at that time, the International Standard Organization had newly established a soundscape working group to develop international soundscape standards. I joined that group at their third meeting and have been involved ever since in helping to draft and develop the soundscape standard series. We have now published three soundscape standards, and they are the first acoustic standards of their kind, and they've been adopted by multiple countries around the world, including, of course, the UK, where we're based. The soundscape standards are distinct from traditional acoustic standards because they set out a framework to measure and assess the acoustic environment as it's perceived or understood by people or person in context. And that is distinctly separate from traditional acoustic standards, which measure the sound at source. So that might be at source of a device or at source of a development, but it's measuring sound at source and then predicting the impact on people. The soundscape standards start with the person and measure and assess their reactions and how they feel in the environment and how that affects them. So this is very important because it helps to begin to provide a framework where we can more accurately assess and ideally predict the human response in context, specifically for the built environment. So how people will respond to the acoustic environment in places where they live, where they work, where they visit for recreational purposes, either indoors or outdoors. Can you give us a sort of a case study example of such responses to certain situations? An area that uh, people can oftentimes relate to is when we're, let's say, sitting in a restaurant in the days when we could sit in a restaurant and <laughs> have conversations with our friends <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a busy restaurant. Um, and we all know that feeling where we're sitting across the, the table from somebody and we're trying to have a conversation with them. But after a while, of course, we just can't hear ourselves think because of the din of the noise around us. And we would say that, that that's an example of a poor acoustic environment because one of the aims of being able to sit in the restaurant and enjoy a meal is also to be able to converse and enjoy the company of those we're with. So if the dynamics of the acoustic environment are not supporting that activity, then we, we would call that a bad acoustic environment. And from the position of soundscape, we would say that that sort of people being affected in that way generally can provoke many types of feelings. People might feel stressed. They might feel tired more quickly. They might feel annoyed. So people have all these emotional responses to that sort of, we would say, stressful acoustic environment. Just like any other environmental or health impact that is taken into account, when building or designing a space, 
good acoustic quality and the impact of the acoustic quality of a place is equally as important and needs to be taken into account so that we're not just designing spaces based on guideline levels to maybe avoid something or not exceed a guideline level. The aim of the acoustic environment is to support healthy, restorative activities that contribute to quality of life, not detract from it, or not be something that we need to mitigate ours against. It's interesting. In a previous episode, one of our guests was a chap called Mahmoud Alamir from the University of Adelaide, and he had conducted a study that showed that music in a restaurant at certain decibels, around 30 to 40, had a positive impact on the dining experience. But the moment music exceeded 50 decibels, people talked about a decline in the pleasure of the dining experience. And another study also showed that when music's louder, people might order more food and more drink, in particular red meats and red wines as it happens. And so some restaurateurs think, oh, this is great, I'll pump the music up and I'll make more money. But it has the opposite effect because people, when it comes to returning to that restaurant, think, oh, that was that loud place, that was that place I really didn't even taste the food, I don't even have any memory of it apart from having to shout. And they're less likely to become frequent visitors, but more likely to become regulars at a restaurant where the mood is good, they can experience the food and they can enjoy a decent conversation. Absolutely. It's a case in point that really illustrates that how we feel when we go to places has the effect of longevity. In other words, they're places that we want to go back to. If we have to go to a place and our only defense against staying there is, you know, drinking more or eating unhealthily to calm ourselves down, even though we may not understand that's what we're doing, then I'd argue that's no different than sitting in a smoke-filled room, you know, breathing in secondhand smoke. That's a good way of looking at it. Yes. Sound is one of our five senses. And just like places are designed for other senses, our visual sense, our sense of smell, our sense of touch, sound is equally, and those of us who are very passionate about it might even say in some senses, more important in some cases, but certainly it's as equally important as any of the other senses. And we need design standards and outcomes that are based on excellent acoustic outcomes, not just minimal specifications to avoid something that might be perceived as damaging our hearing. So do these um, standards manifest in forms of literature in the case of restaurants where a restaurateur can think, right, I'm about to build a restaurant. I want it to be the best food, the best visual experience, but I also want to make sure people are comfortable there. And do these standards uh, manifest in some sort of documentation that they can go to to advise them on What's taken into consideration when building that restaurant? Currently, most of the work regarding Soundscape has been done in the research community. And there is a global movement, hundreds of people, if you will, hundreds of researchers, hundreds of practitioners who are now beginning to work on taking the information and the studies and the evidence that has developed in the research community and transposing that into practical guidance and recommendations. So at the moment, if somebody said, I want to have good acoustic design in my restaurant or my home or a shopping mall or any indoor outdoor space, Mm -hmm. some acoustic consultants and designers will be better at making that happen than others because it's an art as well as a science. So there are very good case studies that we can point to But at the moment, there is very limited practical guidance about how to make these things happen. That said, the guidance is out there. And one of the areas that we're working in to help to get faster uptake, if you will, of the guidance and the good practices that are there regarding uh, Soundscape is working with policymakers. Because the more that Soundscape practices and standards can be transposed into policy, that then helps to provide a stronger framework for developers and practitioners who are building spaces.
I wonder if you might be able to help friends of mine. I've got a good couple of friends who own a flat and it's situated above a supermarket. And at 4.30 in the morning, those roller cages which carry the milk bottles, etc. start rattling and wake them up. We all know the line, who are you going to call Ghostbusters? Is it who are you going to call the Noise Abatement Society when you need someone to tell the supermarket to be quiet at that early hour? Is that a service that you offer? Well, the NAS doesn't provide advocacy per se, although we do have a helpline where people can call and tell us their complaints and what's happening, and we can help them to navigate uh, what options they do have. And many of our campaigns spring from the complaints we get via our helpline. But in the case that you're speaking about specifically, we have done extensive work over a number of years. In 2006, Gloria Elliott, John Connell's daughter, started a program called Silent Approach that was designed specifically to enable out-of-hours or 24-7 delivery and servicing activity efficiently, quietly, and without causing disturbance to residents. So over the years, we have conducted numerous trials in the UK with the Department for Transport and with Transport for London. And we have proven over and over again that it is actually possible to have quiet, safe and efficient deliveries at otherwise inhospitable times of both the day and the evening um, without causing disturbance to residents. And the evidence of that program is on the Department for Transport's website, where they've published all the work that has been done over the years by ourselves and others that they've worked with. And Transport for London recently completed a four-year program called their Retiming Program. And the evidence of how retailers can deliver quietly, safely, and efficiently in sensitive locations is on the TFL website. And there's a nice little movie that actually describes how this can be done very much representing the situation that your friends are exposed to at the moment. What's the Future Sound Foundation program, Lisa? The Future Sound Foundation is where we're taking our soundscape work and putting that in a context where we can mentor the next generation of urban designers and planners. So we've been doing a lot of work with policymakers over the years as part of Soundscape, and that has culminated in many policymakers putting Soundscape requirements in their local policies, and most recently the Welsh government putting Soundscape management requirements within their national noise and soundscape strategy. Mm. They're the first country to do that. And with Future Sound Foundation, we're working closely with academics and researchers and conducting our own research about future soundscape requirements and issues, and also teaching and mentoring the next generation of urban sound planners. And we're doing work at the moment with Harriet Watt University and also Goldsmiths University of London. And we have collaborations with researchers at University College London, UCL, also McGill University in Canada. And we work with a host of other researchers around the world. So our aim with this is to help to educate and inform the town planners, the architects, and the urban designers of the future. One of the guests on our very first episode of the Quiet Mark podcast was Richard Grove from BDP. He's an acoustics director at the Building Design Partnership, and he received the inaugural Armstrong Next Generation Award at the Noise Abatement Society's John Connell Awards in 2019. That sounds like an incredible event. Tell me more about not just the the awards, but also that uh, Next Generation Award. The John Connell Awards were established um, again by John Connell's daughter, Gloria Elliott. And they have been running for nearly 20 years, nearly consecutively. We were not able to run them last year because of COVID, but we are certainly hoping that they will be back in 2021. And the John Connell Awards recognize best practice products, solutions, and programs that seek to alleviate the noise that people suffer, but also seek to recognize and acknowledge innovation and new fresh thinking and new approaches to solving noise problems or developing areas around good acoustic design and soundscape. And the award that Richard Grove and his colleagues received is very much recognizing 
this next generation of practitioners who are really beginning to develop uh, some, some innovative approaches to solving noise that is much more based around the human experience. And this links very closely to the Soundscape concept of it's not just enough to reduce noise or sound levels at source because none of us want to live in an anechoic chamber. You know, the goal is not necessarily objective silence. The goal is good quality, supportive and restorative acoustic environments, regardless of the sound level. You know, a quiet environment can be quite annoying if the sound quality of the environment isn't good. Equally, a very loud environment can be vibrant and exciting if we desire to be in it and also if the sound quality is good. So the type of work that Richard and his colleagues are doing very much pointing to that sort of future. Another excellent example of designing for the future and a project that we recognized at the John Connell Awards was a collaboration we did with a student named Irene Chu when she was doing her master's project at the Royal College of Art in London. Irene is an industrial designer and designed a future car. So it's a driverless vehicle. Mm-hmm. And speak to us, seek that input on the aspect of sound because she was including a multi-sensory approach in the design of this driverless car. And what was excellent about Irene's project is rather than just taking a traditional approach of maybe just reducing noise that would come into the car, she really studied and understood and grasped the soundscape approach that it wasn't just about blocking out noise. It was about designing a good quality acoustic environment or the ability for that environment to be designed around the user's specifications. So she created a, her concept is regarding how each person who was theoretically driving that car could create an acoustic environment that they wanted to be in. And she produced a beautiful video that describes the concept So that is absolutely worth taking a look at as well. But that's the type of work we're doing in Future Sound Foundation, really mentoring and encouraging the next generation of designers. When did you first realise that a future career in sound was what you were going to do? Well, it started with meeting John Connell's granddaughter, Poppy Skeeler. I was looking to transfer from my corporate career into the third sector, not-for-profit sector, if you will, and, you know, ask my contacts if they had any ideas. And a mutual business contact introduced Poppy and I. And the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> we began talking. She asked me what I was doing. I said I was I was looking for um, new opportunities to work in the nonprofit sector. And she said, well, my family runs a charity. I asked her, of course, what they did. And she said that they worked in the area of noise pollution. And I looked at her and I said, you're kidding. And I pulled out my earplugs because I used to travel everywhere with my foam earplugs. And at that time, I was living in London. So whenever I was on the tube, I wore earplugs. And I oftentimes wore them if it was too noisy outside. So I had been aware for a number of years that I was, if you will, noise sensitive. I had always taken precautions or roundabout workarounds, if you will, for how I sort of managed my own exposure to certain sounds. So I was innately aware that this was something that people maybe needed to consider. But I certainly wasn't aware that there was a charity or some formalized way of looking at the impacts of noise pollution. So I was you know, delighted when I found out out. Thankfully, that worked out. And I have to say, once I began to look into you know, the plethora of issues surrounding not just noise pollution, but also just the vast world of acoustics, because acoustics, it affects everything that we do. It affects how we feel. It affects how we can think in certain environments. And it affects what we do and how we enjoy environments. It, cut, it literally cuts across every industry and every part of life. And so the more I found out of just the subject of sound and how it affects everything we do, 
I just became fascinated with it. So yeah, it's been a really exciting journey. So you joined the company in 2009, but I've read that you've done a PhD with the title Soundscape Engagement and Planning Practices in Airport Expansion Projects in the UK, which I want to talk to you about. So was the PhD done since 2009, since you became involved with the Noise Abatement Society? That's right. I'm currently doing the PhD as part of our Future Sound Foundation program. I in my third year of the PhD. And what sparked the work to do it was we started a partnership working with Harriet Watt University. So they are funding the PhD. And we knew within the Future Sound Foundation program that there was certain research aspects that we wanted to develop and contribute ourselves that didn't necessarily fall within the specific areas of research that some of our other partners were doing. And specifically, we wanted to begin to look at how certain what in the industry would be called non-acoustic factors and other from a different perspective, we might call them human factors, but how these human factors affected how people were engaging with traditionally might be termed as noise makers or developers or other sorts of stakeholder engagement activities where it's really important to get good outcomes, that there is good collaboration between stakeholders and that there is very effective co-participatory events and, and actions and frameworks so that we can begin to understand not just how sound is affecting people at the moment, but what their preferences might be for future projects. And that type of research requires many qualitative elements, um, psychology, sociology elements that we felt oftentimes were underrepresented in a great body of the soundscape research that we were seeing. There's excellent and high volumes of soundscape research being developed from the engineering community and many good quality quantitative studies. But we felt that we had something to add by beginning to bring in some high quality qualitative studies to augment and build upon uh, some of the other excellent work that's taking place. So we wanted to focus that specifically in the area of aviation expansion because it's an area where it is not easy to solve noise problems or the effects of noise just simply through traditional abatement measures. So it provides a an environment that's very rich in potential areas of looking into some of the deeper underlying issues that are linked to difficulties in in coming to effective engagement outcomes with stakeholders. And we are also co-sponsoring and co-supervising research with Goldsmith University on the subject of oral diversity that really begins to look at a much more holistic, I would call it more of a biodiversity approach to designing spaces. For example, at the moment when a a space is being designed, consideration is given, of course, to accessibility, you know, physical accessibility, hearing accessibility, sight accessibility. And one of the aspects of oral diversity is are we considering spaces from the perspective of acoustic accessibility? And this is very, very important because there could be mental health outcomes, there could be health issues that people are facing many, many different issues can affect how people respond to an acoustic environment. And so it's important that these sorts of diversity and accessibility issues are also considered in the design of products, services, and the acoustic environment. I'd like to go back to the next generation of acousticians. We were talking earlier about the inaugural Armstrong Next Generation Award. Do you think that um, there's an opportunity with the Noise Abatement Society and the Next Generation Awards for the Greta Thunbergs of noise pollution to come to the fore and get active and do something about it to change the future of sound? We would say the future is already here. And that's because... Unlike other pollutants, it's not possible to only regulate noise based on levels because people respond to sound emotionally. And so while it is true 
that there are associated health effects with noise levels, that is only one part of the story. And depending on which scientists you ask, many practitioners will say that arguably the noise level is only really associated with about a third of the objectively measurable effects. Now, these figures can be disputed, but certainly it is agreed that there is a very large percentage of the effects of noise pollution that are not necessarily easily equatable to the objective noise levels. And that's because a sound signal is composed of many things, many different sorts of qualities, we call them sound qualities, and these are can be measured more directly through psychoacoustic measurements. So there's different types of signals and characteristics within a sound source that can affect people adversely or positively other than the level. And in addition to that, and this is where the soundscape standards come into play, there is each person's reaction to a sound in context. So just like the proverbial dripping tap can be highly annoying while it's not very loud, equally a very loud sound might be, let's say, a warning signal, for instance. That might signal relief to somebody who is, let's say, for instance, called an ambulance. Equally, that might cause alarm to somebody who doesn't know if maybe one of their loved ones is affected. So, you know, and that is just a very broad brush example. I mean, any of us can think of dozens and dozens of such examples in our own lives. So the key with solving noise pollution is not necessarily just campaigning against one single thing like less noise. The answer to noise pollution is good quality acoustic environments. So the answer to solving noise pollution is to actually invest in training and development for people and policymakers, designers, the public, architects, engineers, everyone involved with how we live, work, and play. It's about education in how to create good quality acoustic environments, how to maintain them, and how to enhance them. And that is a very creative activity. And it's much more akin to what we see as a biodiversity approach. So rather than stopping something, what we want to do is create supportive environments so that good things can thrive. And the ability to do that is already here. Engineers, scientists, designers all across the globe already know how to do these things. What is missing is a agreed frameworks, going back to the beginning earlier in our conversation, these agreed frameworks and structures where we know how to replicate these good examples over and over again in practice. Lisa, you've given me a bit of an anxious feeling in your answer there, although there does seem to be some positivity. But the reason I say that is this, you know how you'll hear someone like David Attenborough say, and we are almost at the point of no return. We're almost at the point where if the global temperature rises to this level, there's no turning back. There's no improving it. We'll never be able to do anything about it. And what I got from you was a sense that we're already at that level in terms of sound. But the world quietened by 50% during lockdown. And I want to put this to you. I've noticed, and I don't know if it's just because I'm doing this show, but I think people have recognised that the world had become too loud and they're cherishing this quieter time. And they're thinking, how can we preserve this quiet post-pandemic? Do you think that lockdown has grown people's appreciation for quiet? Well, the objective of living, generally speaking, is not silence. And what we need to keep in mind is that the problem was never that things were getting too loud. The world in the places where it ended up too loud is a byproduct of lack of good quality acoustic design and soundscape management. So just like if we were looking at an urban park and we decided that this park is horrible because there's not enough green space, 
It's next to a very, very busy road, and there's no play equipment for children, and there's no bicycle path. We wouldn't look at that and say, that just happened by accident because this is what happens to city parks. No, we'd logically look at it and say, that park was not designed to have a bicycle path and some green space and certain type of play equipment for children. And we put it next to a busy road because at the time that that happened, you know, we didn't think the road was going to be that much of a problem or have that much traffic. But the answer wouldn't be to not have any city parks. No, what we would say is, right, now we need to either renovate or redesign this park or to get it to be a certain quality and have certain elements that we now know we we very much desire. And we make sure that these design requirements are in subsequent parks that we build. That's how we would approach it. The acoustic environment is the same way. The goal isn't to have less activities or to not have progress or development. The goal is to have those things as they always should have been with good quality acoustic environments so that we end up with soundscapes that people can live, work and play in and enjoy as intended. I can relate very much to what you've just said there. In fact, we're recording this episode on the 14th of January and only yesterday we published episode 14 of the Quiet Mark podcast and our guests on that were a couple of companies called Soundtrack City and Tranquil City and Soundtrack City are based in Amsterdam and they talked about a square in Amsterdam. I'm not going to pronounce it very well. It was called Major Visjaplein, I think is the, uh, it's a, a named after a major and a lot of money was spent on the renovation of this square with the intent to attract people to it, to use it as a nice open space, but people didn't use it. And why didn't they use it? Because it sounded awful. There were cars passing by. And one of the things they cited was the fact that the square, for example, had these big square plant pots in it, which were reflecting sound. And if only they'd used circular plant pots, it might have helped the sound problems, less reflections. But of course, these square plant pots might look fantastic in a drawing and in a design. And all too often, the squares are designed with a visual lead and not an acoustic lead and it's only when you've built it that you think my goodness it's not served its purpose we've spent a fortune and no one's going here exactly and this is why we have so many problems with noise pollution these are design choices that were either made or not made you know made unwittingly but these problems are human made problems and they are design and engineering problems therefore they can be solved and in some cases, that's easier than others. And in some cases, it's you know difficult to start over and fix things once they've been built. But these problems are within our grasp. You know, we think of soundscape as another, far from limiting designers, it's another palette for designers. It's another dimension, designing for the sonic dimension. And so that gets into very exciting areas of innovation. As you've noted, the shape of spaces, the shape of items within spaces, the materials that are used, the surfaces of spaces, because sound, even though we can't necessarily see it unless it passes through a certain medium, which we can see, we can't see its movements. But just like water or air, it's reacting to the space that it's in. And those reactions create a reaction in us. So just like an orchestra, how we build and design the environment with acoustic principles in mind has the same effect on humanity and animals and plant life, you know, all life. It has effects just like an orchestra. And in fact, Murray Schaefer, the Canadian composer and polymath, talks about our responsibility for the orchestration of the acoustic environment around us. And he directly challenges us, if you will, that a noise problem is a lack of soundscape management. It is not an inevitable effect. Another project I'd like to share with your listeners, Simon, is some work we did with Brighton and Hove City Council. And we worked with them on a program called Sounding Brighton, which was a series of events 
where we, together with researchers from the EU Cost Action on Soundscapes for European Cities and Landscapes, and also with the ISO Soundscape Working Group, we put together a series of projects with the council to address, initially, it was night noise issues that they were facing in their clubbing district. And this is an example of a way that we worked with the city authority to take a soundscape-based approach to traditional noise problems. So traditionally, people might complain about noise and the assumption would be that the source of that noise either had to be stopped or if it couldn't be stopped easily, then some sort of compromise needed to be developed if possible between the noise sufferer, in many cases that's generally residents, and uh, the noise maker, the business or industry. Mm-hmm. But within Soundscape, we take the approach that there's no bad sounds, there's just the wrong sounds in the wrong context. So it's a design issue as opposed to a good or bad issue. And this links back to the music analogy that we were talking about where motorhead in one context (laughs) might be good, but in another context, bad because it's not desirable. So noise is a subjective judgment based on a sound, but sounds themselves are neither good or bad. It's just the context and the preference at the time. With Brighton, there was many problems that were happening in the clubbing district related to noise, especially on Friday and Saturday nights when the district Again, this is going back way pre-COVID, was was extremely busy. And the assumption by many was, well, why do residents live there? Why do they move there knowing that it's a clubbing brick? When we began to speak with residents, we found out that they knowingly moved there because it was a lively and vibrant area. But after the extension of licensing laws, the area had become in their minds, no longer vibrant, it had tipped over into chaotic because they didn't often know at two or three in the morning if a club was just getting out and people were making their way home and just being quite lively, or if perhaps, you know, somebody was being hurt. Whereas prior to the extension of the licensing laws, they sort of knew what to expect if they heard certain noises in the streets, let's say at two or three in the morning. So the issue wasn't that they wanted the clubs to shut. They actually accepted that it was going to be very noisy on certain uh, nights of the week. But their issue was they no longer could accurately understand what the noises were that they were hearing at certain times of the night. So with that in mind, we said, well, okay, we can't stop these sounds from happening. But what we could do is perhaps look at tuning the environment in a slightly different way. So just, again, very much like an orchestra, if you had, you know, maybe the horn section was too loud or the clarinets weren't playing their part correctly or weren't coming through, you would tune the orchestra to sound and adjust slightly differently to match the preference of what you're trying to achieve. So we took uh, Murray Schaefer at his word. And again, in the book, Soundscape and Tuning of the World, he describes that effective soundscape management is a combination of a collaboration between science, society, and the arts. That's how he describes it. So we might say in modern days, science might be, let's say, engineering sciences, acoustic sciences, some of the more quantitative elements of science. Society might include, let's say, the social sciences, obviously residents and stakeholders, policymakers, and the arts, of course, explanatory, artists, musicians, designers, architects, people who are designing for the environment. And there's the combination of these elements coming together that are required to create a good soundscape, a good quality acoustic environment. Because it's not just about the numbers, it's about how people feel and how they act and are able to navigate the environment. So are you suggesting then that to do with some retuning of that orchestra, to use the analogy, that the residents who didn't mind the clubs, but their issue was that they couldn't differentiate just drunken banter versus someone genuinely in trouble, that there was some sort of adjustment of tuning which would enable that differentiation to happen? 
Yes, exactly. That's that's the approach that we took. Mm. So they didn't want to just shut out the noise. They wanted to understand whether or not they needed to help somebody or if they could just, you know, ignore it. So we we decided to put Murray Schaefer's framework to the test and mm-hmm. we said, okay, science. So we had lots of scientists that we were working with through the cost action and through the soundscape working group. And we had society, obviously residents, the council, various policymakers involved across different uh, departments within the council. And we said, okay, well, we need is arts. We had discussions with various artists who might be willing to work with us on the project. And we had a meeting of the minds uh, with Martin Ware. Martin Ware of the Human League, one of my favourite ever bands. That's exactly. Oh, my goodness. And yeah, very exciting. The great thing about working with Martin is that right from the beginning, he understood what we were trying to achieve because designing for the acoustic environment doesn't just mean putting in an artistic sound installation, you know, to drown out the noise or the undesired sounds. It's about designing a supportive ambient environment that actually helps people to either feel safe or comfortable or able to not be distracted by things that are not necessarily relevant to what they need to be attuned to for particular activities. So Martin understood that what we were trying to achieve was a collaboration between all parties, Mm. not just putting in a independent sound installation on its own. So he was willing to work as an artistic member of the whole team. Of that Murray Schaefer framework. Exactly. I mean, it was fantastic. And he really approached it with an open mind and just really being willing to effectively learn along with us as well. It was really exciting. We had funding from the Arts Council and from Brighton and Hove City Council. And it was produced for a project called White Night, which is an all-night arts and cultural event that Brighton and Hove City Council was producing. So we set up an experiment with Martin Ware and also with uh, Dr. Harry Witchell from Brighton and Sussex Medical School, who's a behavioral expert and a biologist. And the purpose of this project was to see if we could successfully tune, if you will, the environment of this clubbing district, which was called West Street, so that the area would not sound as harsh and cacophonous as it might normally do in the middle of the night on a busy Saturday night. So we called the project West Street Story because what we realized as we began to take to look at the project through the lens of a soundscape approach, in other words, there are no bad sounds. There's only the wrong sounds in the wrong context. Rather than how do we stop the bad sounds, we thought, well, really... People think of, if you will, the noise on West Street in one way as something bad. But actually what we want to create, what we have the opportunity to do is create a new West Street story to have the area viewed and looked at and experienced in a different way. And because we weren't able to stop the sounds, if you will, because that would have meant shutting the clubs, Mm -hmm. we thought, yeah, rather than closing down, what we can do is create an environment that is more peaceful, easier to be in. And hopefully means that when people are coming out of the clubs, they just feel a bit more calmer. They're not just sort of coming out into what they would normally experience is a very, very harsh environment at night with um, honking horns because the clubs are right. They're intersected by a busy road and people screaming at each other and all these other acoustic signals that when we did our analysis we just felt might be serving to just make people feel more on edge when they came out of the clubs rather rather than maybe just come out into a calmer, more supportive acoustic environment. So Martin Ware created an artistic treatment for the area that was broadcast into the area to balance out and to counteract the harsh sounds of the environment so that when people came out of the clubs, They were coming out more into a more pleasant ambient environment. So this wasn't an artistic installation that was meant to, you know, it wasn't a concert outside. It was very much an ambient treatment to 
the exterior acoustic environment. And it worked very, very well. And people were much calmer on the night. And, you know, we had amazing feedback from the council and from residents and people who were in the area that night. But that's just an example of a very creative way of dealing with a particularly uh, tricky problem. But that sort of environment could have been designed right from the beginning uh, with the right knowledge, with the right training, with the right understanding by designers, architects, city planners, so have you. By looking at the road surfaces, for instance, the surface of the buildings, the angles of the buildings, you know, there's many other it's called passive design elements that could be put into place, not just in West Street, but any such area in a city where we get this noise canyon effect. There's many other ways to address these issues so that we have pre-existing good acoustic environments. Going back to your earlier point, you know, how did the world get so noisy? It's because of poor design decisions, probably never intentionally, but it's just based on a lack of understanding of the real impact of how people feel and respond to sound and how that affects us. And what's great about your West Street story is that it's a story that can be told in cities and towns up and down the country and around the world. There are West Streets and clubbing districts in many towns and these solutions aren't just peculiar to Brighton. They can be implemented around the world and you enable that scalability, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And this is exactly what we want to see happen. So just like Murray Schaefer talks about a concept of sound marks, a thing, things that are unique, uh, sonic signals, if you will, that are unique to certain environments. And just like we move to places because we like certain landscapes, the sea, the mountains, greenery, we also innately respond to the acoustic environments where we live as well. And there's certain types of acoustic environments that create sound marks in Brighton. The seagulls are one, the mm-hmm. seaside, you know, the mountains and the trees, you know, there can be different things that inspire us acoustically. Part of soundscape management is really designing with respect for the acoustic environment and enhancing sounds of pleasure, sounds that we like, sounds that we want to hear, and enabling those to happen in a much more creative way. So each city, each area can come to ways in which they address, if you will, their West Street stories. And one city that is addressing this is the city of Montreal in Canada. We've been able to share the work that we've done in Brighton with many cities around the world. But the city of Montreal really took it to heart. And they have a program called Sounds in the City. And they have been developing a whole series of collaborative projects where they're working with all of their stakeholders to do applied research. So test pilot projects, see what's what works or what doesn't in the city, collaborating again, you know, that mix of art, science and society and making those collaborations with the city to really begin to influence both for present generations, but also future generations what the city of Montreal will not just look like, but sound like. I love the fact that art is part of the solution. And as it happens, Lisa, I'm reading a book at the moment called Sweet Dreams by Dylan Jones, who's the editor of GQ magazine. He's written this amazing book following club culture and the new romantics. And Martin Ware is interviewed in that book and he was part of the Human League and he went on to do uh, Heaven 17 and it's quite an irony that one of the hit songs of the Human League was a song called The Sound of the Crowd so uh, (laughs) I I couldn't let that one go. (laughs) Very apropos. (laughs) Lisa it's been fantastic discussing uh, the Noise Abatement Society, the work you do and finding out more about what your history and your approach to this. Thank you so much for agreeing to be a guest on the show. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Simon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Our sincere thanks to Lisa LeVere at the Noise Abatement Society. I was completely enthralled by her story of the West Street Story Project, that project that she shared in the clubbing districts of Brighton. And I'm delighted to say that since doing this recording with Lisa, I've been in touch with Martin Ware 
and we've recorded a forthcoming episode of the Quiet Mark podcast where he tells of his experiences with that West Street project, along with other stories past, present and future of the work that he's been doing, not least of all with the bands I enjoyed so much in my youth and still do today, Heaven 17, The Human League, and on the subject of Martin and podcasts, I do thoroughly recommend that you check out Martin's own podcast, which is called Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. It's a fantastic podcast. He's had some amazing guests on it. And if you're an 80s music buff like myself, then you'll enjoy episodes with Midger, Vince Clark, Kim Wilde. The list is endless. And it's not just 80s artists. It's also people like Sandy Shaw and another one of my personal heroes, Richard Hawley. So yeah, do check out Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. And I look forward to sharing that episode with you. But going back to that West Street project and what Lisa said, I loved how she said we took a soundscape approach. And that approach being with the view that there's no such thing as a bad sound. It's just about the wrong sounds in the wrong context. After my conversation with Lisa, I really got to thinking about the word soundscape. It comes up in almost every conversation I enjoy on this Quiet Mark podcast. But it is a funny one. When you think about it, if I said name your favourite landscape painters, you'd probably suggest Turner. Constable, Monet, Pissarro, Cezanne, Hockney. The list is endless and it's the shows of those landscape artists which are the blockbuster shows at the biggest museums around the world. But whilst we can name landscape artists, could you name a soundscape artist? The more I thought about that question, the more I thought about something that Matthew Herbert had said on a previous episode of the Quiet Mark podcast. Matthew Herbert, of course, is a creative director at the BBC New Radiophonic Workshop And this year, he's also the Chair of Judges at the Sound of the Year Awards. Let me play you again what Matthew said about our relationship with sound recording. I think there's a really crucial kind of unpicking that's needed about what we talk about when we talk about sound. So actually, recorded sound is an incredibly recent phenomenon really in human development. I mean, we have the recorded image since cave paintings, you know, people put handprints in in caves or drew animals or what have you, but we haven't had recording, for example, of an animal till the invention of the wax cylinder or the microphone or, you know, wherever you want to pinpoint the origins of it, which is, you know, not that long ago, 140 years ago or so, which is actually a very short period of time, you know, and yet there's, you know, Google image search or there's huge archives of um, stock images and things like that, that you can look at different styles and fashions and things like that. Yeah, we're in a very sort of young, crude, early stage of what listening means. And in that same episode, Matthew was joined by Cheryl Tip, the curator of natural sounds at the British Library, who said something very poignant about what sound means to us. Have a listen to this. In our archive, we have recordings, a few recordings of, of extinct species, okay, so extinct, extinct birds. And like, you, can, you can show someone a painting of that bird and say it's extinct. You can show someone a specimen of the bird and say it's extinct. But when you play a recording of that animal while it was still alive, you know, singing it on our planet, and we will never hear this ever, ever again because of what we've done, the, the, the response you get, from people, you know, I've seen, I've, I've, I've brought, it's, it's brought people to tears when you, mm. when you hear this recording and, and the, the one that I'm referring to is the last male, the last individual of that species just singing for his mate that was, you know, has, has gone. You're, he's on his own on this planet, all because of us, you know, and it's, it's the, the, like the last, the last sound that he, he made. And then a couple of years later, he disappears and that's it. And we, we know that this is because of us. And so, it it triggers something so deep within us, sound. That's Matthew Herbert and Cheryl Tipp on episode 16 of the Quiet Mark podcast, which is available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And I really recommend listening to that whole episode where they talk about the Sound of the Year Awards. But it's really interesting hearing what Matthew said. We're in our infancy of recorded sound. And Cheryl tells us how with sound, when we hear something, It can stir deep emotional reactions in us, which perhaps our other senses can hardly come close to. No wonder, in conversations I've enjoyed on this podcast, we've heard many people discuss buildings that have a fantastic visual aesthetic, but don't necessarily sound great. Visual design so often takes a priority over sound design. And yet, as you've heard in this episode, when you combine the two and give equal priority to both of them, you create better healthier spaces. 
And that's really why QuietMark exists, to encourage companies to create products and materials which provide solutions to unwanted noise. In our Acoustics Academy, you can find building materials which improve sound in the built environment. Thank you again for listening to the show. We've got some wonderful guests lined up in the pipeline, so keep tuning in. We always enjoy sharing our stories with you. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen to them. Take care now. Bye-bye.